Welcome to Footprints, a neighborhood walking tour of indigenous history in support of the reparations mission of First Parish in Brookline. We are so happy to have you joining us. This tour is about a mile in length, includes hills, some of them steep, and while it is mostly on sidewalks, there are a few curbs and stairs, two short but narrow trails through the woods, and a hilly cemetery. The tour should take about an hour. My name is Paul McLean. My pronouns are he, him, and his. And though I don't want to sidetrack this complex story, strict gender roles were a big part of the Puritan Christian education that the settlers imposed upon Native people. I am not indigenous to this place. In the late 1700s, my ancestors fled oppression in Scotland, only to claim land in what became Canada and participate in the removal of native Mi'kmaq people. My Irish ancestors also fled to Canada and participated in converting Blackfoot and other First Nations people to Catholicism, a process increasingly understood as cultural genocide. I grew up in Los Angeles. Hollywood Westerns were my main experience of native people. I did not know that I grew up on the ancestral land of the, of the Tongva people or that they still exist. My name is Jody Leader. My pronouns are she, her, hers. I am not indigenous. I'm of Swiss Irish ancestry. When my great grandfather immigrated to this country, he likely built his wealth on land stolen from the Kickapoo and Shoshone Bannock tribal nations and then renamed that were then renamed Centralia, Missouri, and Downey, Idaho. This was about the turn of the century. Paul and I own property in Brookline. The land we own was among 175 acres allotted by the King of England to a surgeon named Thomas Oliver in the 1630s. The land was then owned by a succession of whites, their actual name was white, who, over generations, enslaved and traded and kidnapped people of color and made money doing it. They were the first to say they owned the land that Paul and I now call ours. Before them, the Massachusetts and other Native people who lived here believed that land was a common good that could not be privately owned. A warning. There are brutal aspects to this story that might be uncomfortable to hear. The erasure of Native Americans in Brookline involves kidnapping, slavery, genocide, colonizing, and land theft. We won't wallow in that language, but we can't avoid it. So we begin our tour at the intersection of Chestnut and Walnut Streets in Brookline. Stop number one. Walnut and Chestnut is quite an intersection. Jody and I have walked past here for more than a quarter century, walking our kid to school, walking up Walnut to church, walking our dogs. Our footprints are here. We'd walk through this graveyard on the other side of this wall and see the names of people who Brookline chose to remember on its streets and parks and schools. Their footprints are here. There is a woman buried here whose name is not on a headstone. Susanna Bacchus was the daughter of a kidnapped African man and a poor Native American woman. In the 1800s, Susanna lived with white Brookline families and worked for them. We wonder if she was enslaved. 
We believe she was a descendant of a Massachusetts man alive in the 1630s when this land was stolen. His name was Monaquassin. He was a student of the Puritan missionary John Eliot. Monaquassin became a teacher who spoke and wrote in both English and Algonquin. We can imagine them walking along this ancient path now known as Walnut Street. Before there was Walnut Street, Native people used this path to move within their kinship networks, including a village a few blocks from here. And Chestnut Street recalls the forests of chestnut trees that greeted the European settlers, invaluable for the wood and the food source, and imported disease killed most of the chestnuts, but not all of them. We will walk by one in, on the Lincoln School Grounds. This tour is about what we choose to remember and what we don't. We don't include a land acknowledgement because that's essentially what this walking tour is. Susanna Bacchus and Monaquassen's footprints are here. So are the ancestors who connect to them. We want to remember that. Here's another reason this is quite an intersection. This plaque features the names of enslaved Africans buried in unmarked graves in the cemetery. For years, you'd never know that, but now we remember, thanks to Barbara Brown and the town's hidden Brookline committee. The names of these men and women are Adam, Kate, Hagar, Venus, Seiko, Felix, Boston, Charles, and Ben. Just up the street, there's a stone dedicated to those who marched to the Revolutionary War. There is no such remembrance of when Native Americans were forcibly removed from here. No mention of King Philip's War or the European imported plague that killed so many Native people. This is why Susanna Bacchus and Mona Quassen have become import so important to our story. Let's cross Walnut to the red brick wall that encloses Lincoln School. We'll stop on the other side of the brick arch entrance and take a look back at the cemetery. This is where our tour will end. Now we'll remember to duck and walk through the arch onto the Lincoln grounds. Now turn off the recording and walk through the brick arch. You should now be at stop number two, just on the, on the other side of the red brick wall enclosing Lincoln School. You should be standing under a chestnut tree. The ridged and pointed leaves grow in large clusters of five or six. In the fall, the tree produces chestnuts encased in spiky pods. As Paul mentioned earlier, forests of chestnut trees that greeted the European settlers. The tree was, an invaluable, was invaluable for the wood and the food source and an imported disease killed most of the chestnuts, but not all of them. This tour is inspired by our friend Anne Gilmore and the story she told in the first parish webinar, quote, the theft of indigenous land and the enslavement of indigenous and African people in Brookline. Anne is a member of an extended Mashpee Wampanoag family through marriage and motherhood. She is an essential voice as first parish begins to take seriously the idea of reparations for slavery land theft and genocide, and stories are an important part of that process. As Anne has noted, the Massachusetts people believe their storytelling tradition is central to their very survival. 
So this tour is also one way a contemporary faith community tries to walk the walk, to seek truth, to understand our past, to atone. Repair has become a defining aspect of the First Parish Mission. Later in this tour, we will offer a lamentation, which we believe is essential to this ritual remembering. 400 years ago, there there were no signs on Walnut Street. No stop signs, no street signs. There was no Walnut Street. It was simply an ancient footpath. In the 1600s, the pilgrim missionary John Eliot used it in traveling to make Christians of the native people of the praying town at the praying town in Natick, and perhaps in the village just blocks from here. Now, along Walnut, you'll see signs that say no dogs off leash in the cemetery, no right on red, signs that caution cars and trucks to slow down for, and stop for the kids at Lincoln School. There is one historical marker for the original town green and another for the Philbrick House, which was part of the Underground Railroad. Walnut Street was both peopled by enslavers and part of the long path to freedom for enslaved people. Like Jody's in my home, the Philbrick property was part of the land allotted in the 1630s to Thomas Oliver. You know what there's no sign of here now? There's no sign that the Massachusetts people were ever here. There is no Monoquassin Street, no Susanna Bacchus Avenue. Native Americans lived here for thousands of years before European settlers arrived and divvied up the land with the blessing of the King of England. Then they were essentially removed and erased from memory. So effective has this erasure been that it can surprise people to be told there are Native Americans living in Brookline today. In grade school, I was taught that Native Americans don't exist anymore, that they died out. I remember visiting a natural history museum in New York City and seeing life-size dioramas of statues of Native Americans. The message was that these people were primitive and from the past and no longer existed. So we pose this question to you, our listener, what was the messaging around Native American history that you received growing up? See the big yellow house towering over the school grounds? It was built for the transcendentalist Henry Hedge, a first parish minister in the 1850s. Transcendentalists were vocal advocates for Native Americans, going so far as to tell the president that forced removal of Native people was an evil and a crime. During a recent Footprints tour, a Cherokee woman from Brookline told us that Cherokee people in Oklahoma still remember the New England ministers who spoke up for them. It still means something. Native Americans were the first people enslaved in Brookline in 1675. These are their names. Tonaquin, George William, Great David, Rube, John Indian, and Hawkins. King Philip's war was raging and colonists feared strong young indigenous men. This motivated their enslavement. Historian Barbara Brown reminds us, by the early 1700s, only a handful of native people still appear in town records. We must not forget these men. We will be walking along Hedge Road as it bends toward Boylston Street and Route 9. 
Smallpox was one of the diseases that devastated the Native American population after first contact with Europeans. Boylston was a physician whose work helped develop the vaccine for smallpox. He is buried in the old burial ground. Turn off the recording. Walk through the basketball court between the hedge house and the Lincoln cafeteria, then around the back to the Three Sisters garden located behind the school in the middle of the traffic circle. You should now be at stop number three, the Lincoln Garden. This teaching garden at Lincoln School is a gift of memory for this neighborhood. Lincoln's green team and the second and third grade students and teachers have created a garden featuring the three sisters, a practice in many Native American cultures. The three sisters are corn, squash, and beans, plants that literally support each other's growth and the health of the soil. Corn pushes through the earth and climbs toward the sky. Beans wrap around the corn's strong stalks and add nitrogen to the soil. Squash vines stretch across the ground, keeping the garden bed cool and moist, discouraging weeds and providing a line of defense against hungry caterpillars. In that way, they are a plant community. The three vegetables together, when eaten together, make a complete protein. In the fall, they become soup. For Lincoln students, this garden is a history class. And from late spring into fall, it carries the faint memory of the people who once lived here. Listen to the words of Potawatomi author and scientist Robin Wall Kimmerer from her book, Braiding Sweetgrass. Quote, I hold in my hand the genius of indigenous architecture, the three sisters. Together, these plants, corn, beans, and squash, feed the people, feed the land, and feed our imaginations, telling us how we might live, end quote. In other words, plants can teach us how we might live in a more harmonious relationship with the land. Now, turn off the recording and walk along Hedge Road toward Route 9 Boylston Street. Stop anywhere along Hedge Road before the noise of Route 9 gets too loud and turn on the recording. You should now be at stop number four, Hedge Road. David Troyer, an Ojibwe journalist and author, covers a lot of erased memory in this excerpt from his 2019 book, The Heartbeat of Wounded Knee. Quote, European diseases often arrived well in advance of Europeans and decimated Indian populations even more ruthlessly, especially when paired with slavery. Rather than welcoming Europeans with open arms when the Mayflower landed at Plymouth in mid-November 1620, precious few Indians remained alive on the eastern seaboard to lift their arms at all. Those who had survived were in turmoil, their very cultures in tatters. Other tribes, untouched by disease, filled power vacuums. Some tribes ceased to exist at all. And Gilmer told us that from 1636 to 1642, more than 100 land grants on the Muddy River were provided to English settlers, including to leaders responsible for the massacre of the Pequots south of Brookline. Muddy River is an old name for Brookline. So some of this information also comes from an article in the Brookline High School newspaper, The Cypress, formerly called The Sagamore. 
an article by Anissa Sharma and Ben Kaplan, who interviewed Barbara Brown and Ann Gilmore in December 2022. Quote, maps show that by 1667, the entirety of the town was handed out to colonists with no land left for the native Massachusetts people. This came shortly after the initial settlement of Boston. The Massachusetts faced increasing pressures to move away from their indigenous way of life in Brookline. Following the settlement brought on by these land grants, the remaining Native Americans became subject to harsh laws around the 1840s. Quote, it's also when they instituted the Indian codes, which were like the black codes and restricted the movement of Native Americans in this area, Brown said, that Native Americans often came back to visit their burial ground after they were forced out of the Chestnut Hill area. They would come back when they were no longer allowed to live here to visit their ancestors and pay respects. What is especially powerful about that story is that it personalizes, it makes human, the abstractions of losing their land. Native Americans lost the ability to live near the cemetery where their ancestors were buried, but they came anyway to visit them after they'd lost the land." End quote. It is true that some tribes cease to exist, but it's important to remember that many are alive and well, including the Wampanoag on Aquina on Martha's Vineyard, Mashpee Wampanoag on Cape Cod, and the Massachusetts tribe at Ponkapoag. You can find the Massachusetts Collective Voice on their website, massachusettribe.org. So to switch gears a little, Here's an example of a Native American view of how the world works. Along Route 9, goldenrod and asters bloom often together midsummer and into the fall. Asters may be white or cream or deep purply blue. They're small, compact blossoms growing in clusters. Goldenrod's golden tendrils of tiny blossoms cascade in clusters off tall, thin stems. Why do these flowers often grow together? Robin Wall Kimmerer wanted to know. In her book, Braiding Sweetgrass, she recalls telling her college advisor that one reason she wanted to study botany was, quote, because I wanted to learn about why asters and goldenrod look so beautiful together, end quote. She was told, that's not science. If you want to study beauty, you should go to art school. And yet Kimmerer later would persevere in botany school, learning that the goldenrod and asters grow together because they are more visually compelling to bees. Quote, growing together, both receive more pollinator visits than they would if they were growing alone. It's a testable hypothesis. It's a question of science, a question of art, and a question of beauty, end quote. She calls this the architecture of relationships and, quote, lived reciprocity, end quote. She was also moved to wonder, quote, if indigenous knowledge and Western science might be goldenrod and asters for each other. Since its publication 10 years ago, Kimmerer's book has become a lightning rod for inviting people to meld indigenous knowledge and science, celebrating our reciprocal relationship with the world. Now, turn off the recording and walk down Hedge Road to Route 9. Turn left, walk along Route 9 for one block, cross Warren Street at the crosswalk, walk up the short rise to the edge of the Brookline Reservoir.
you should now be at stop number five, the Brookline Reservoir Park. Native people live not in a wilderness, our friend Ann Gilmore says, but in a sustaining space of villages and larger kinship and trading networks. To walk along Walnut Street is to walk the path that connected them. One village was near the at west end of the Brookline Reservoir, which at the time was Marsh, with a stream that meandered down toward Brookline Village. We know the location of this village because a settler dug up Native American tools and relics in clearing what became farmland. The village also had a burial ground. For years after being forced away, Massachusetts people would return to visit their ancestors. Now a street is named for the farmer who dug up the relics. It intersects with a street named for the missionary. Across the reservoir, there's no memorial for the Massachusetts village and burial ground. They have long been paved and built over. Miles to the west along the path was the praying town at Natick, where Elliot would travel to preach his gospel. This is where Monoclassen became schoolmaster. Christian conversion demanded adopting strict English gender roles. Native men were pressured to confess their sins, and the women lost their agricultural connection to the land. Monoquassin hated cutting his hair. As he learned English to, and to write in Algonquin, he feared losing his ability to provide for his family. David Troyer gives us a picture of tribal agriculture and life in this region in his book, The Heartbeat of Wounded Knee. Quote, the Algonquin-speaking tribes included the Powhatan, Nanticoke, Penacook, Massachusetts, Mohegan, Delaware, Mohican, Abenaki, Mi'kmaq, Pequot, Wampanoag, and scores of other small tribes. Opportunities for seasonal fishing, foraging, and hunting large game farther from shore encouraged the growth of numerous small seasonal villages of no more than a few hundred, organized by clan. The tribe spent the summer netting birds and harvesting berries and nuts near the sea. In the fall, they moved to other temporary villages better suited to net spawning fish. In the winter, they congregated in larger villages and lived in multifamily longhouses to conserve heat, water, and material for shelter. They grew corn, beans, and squash, but favored slash-and-burn methods that dictated moving to new planting grounds every few years, end quote. Troyer continues, this is one reason for early, uh, this is one reason early European explorers and colonists found cathedral-like old-growth forests and rich open country ready for planting. The virgin land, they described, was hardly virgin at all, having been shaped by the tribes of the region for millennia, end quote. At our next stop, a neighborhood gem known as Friedman Park will pause for short readings with lament as a theme. So let's have another look toward the west end of the reservoir and remember that the Massachusetts village and its people. Turn off the recording. Retrace your steps back across Warren Street. Walk along Warren Street toward Walnut until you see a small opening in the wall on your left. That is the entrance to Friedman Park.
a small public green space. Take the trail to the small lawn. You should now be at stop number six, Friedman Park. In creating this tour, we've been unable to connect in a real way with the people who were erased from this place. But could we understand the enduring erasure itself and get a sense of our own complicity and maybe bring the knowledge that the people native to this place are still here, living on a fraction of their original land in Ponkapogue, in Taunton, on the Cape, on Martha's Vineyard, and other New England tribal land. But the erasure is undeniable along this ancient path. Anne Gilmore stressed that lament must be a real part of this story. Here's a poem, An American Sunrise, it's called, by Joy Harjo, a member of the Muskegee Creek Nation and a former poet laureate for this complicated country. We were running out of breath as we ran to, out to meet ourselves. We were surfacing the edge of our ancestors' fights and ready to strike. It was difficult to lose days in the Indian bar if you were straight, easy if you played pool and drank to remember to forget. We made plans to be professional and did. And some of us could sing, so we drummed a firelit pathway up to those starry stars Sin was invented by the Christians, as was the devil, we sang. We were the heathens, but needed to be saved from them. Thin chance. We knew we were all related in this story. A little gin will clarify the dark and make us all feel like dancing. We had something to do with the origins of blues and jazz, I argued with a Pueblo as I filled the jukebox with dimes in June, 40 years later, and we still want justice. We are still America. We know the rumors of our demise. We spit them out. They die soon. And Gilmore tells us, Quote, the Wampanoag, the Nipmuc, the Narragansett, the Pequot, the Mohegan, and the Massachusetts have survived 400 years of conquest and yet remain largely invisible to most of us who occupy their homelands. Their populations have continued to recover from the devastating losses of the colonial period. They have navigated and resisted evolving attempts by the state and federal government to assimilate, terminate, or erase them in the 19th, 20th, and early 21st centuries, end quote. Sherry Mitchell is a lawyer and teacher from Maine's Penobscot Nation. Her name in Algonquin translates as, she who brings the light. Mitchell offers these words in closing her book, Sacred Instructions, quote, at all times, we must remember that we are the dreams of the ancestors come to life, the living expression of their seventh generation, we are not placeholders in time, but guardians of the future. As such, we have the responsibility for dreaming the next seven generations into being. This dreaming is the work of our lives. It is what we were born to do." End quote. Now turn off the recording and walk out of the park. Cross Walnut Street at the crosswalk. Walk on the grounds of First Parish in Brookline to a small trail that leads up into the woods. 
The trail is located at the edge of the parking lot that borders Warren Street. You should now be at stop number seven, First Parish in Brookline. As we've said, several Massachusetts were kidnapped, enslaved, and sent by this town's settlers to the Caribbean in 1675. About 40 years later, Brookline's town fathers established this church. It was known as the Church of Christ. First Parish practices the Unitarian Universalist faith today, but began by law as a Christian congregation located at the town center in 1717. Brookline's first civic leaders were the church leaders. Some became wealthy, trading in enslaved people. The first minister, Reverend James Allen, was an enslaver. Recently, First Parish has been diving deep into our painful past and looking ahead to repair and reparations. The congregation recently pledged to, to continue to learn about, acknowledge, and work to repair the historic and ongoing moral and material harm to black and indigenous people and, com and communities. The congregation has just begun working with Brookline High and faith leaders to address racism at the school. Along this historic path now known as Walnut Street, First Parish teachers and students have created the Three Sisters Path, a lovely meandering trail lined with Tibetan prayer flags leading up to a seating area in the woods. Turn off the recording, take a look at the land acknowledgement written by First Parish kids, and then follow the short path into the woods. Pause there and reflect, then walk back down the trail and head for the front of the church building. Have a seat in the chairs on the long stone porch. Turn back on the recording when you've arrived. Let's imagine we're in the previous church building in the 1800s. The Brookline Historical Society described that building as 74 pews on the floor, 14 in the gallery, and a separate pew for people of color over the choir. In the 1820s, the Philbrick family owned their own pew and lived on Walnut Street, a few blocks east of the cemetery. Their home is historic as part of the Underground Railroad. The Philbricks twice brought a 12-year-old black foster child to sit with them in church. This outraged members of the white congregation who wanted to worship separate from people of color. The Philbricks left the church rather than live with a ban on sitting with their foster child. That is, rather than letting their church compromise their own moral sense. Which brings us back to Susanna Bacchus. She was a regular in that segregated balcony for 50 years. We believe she was up there when the Philbrooks brought their foster child into their pew. We wonder what Susanna was thinking as she watched the drama play out down below. Our last stop is back at the old burying ground, established in 1717, same year as First Parish. At the entrance, pause to take in the wall along Walnut Street. Look for where the wall angles slightly as it descends toward the intersection of Chestnut and Walnut. That's where Susanna Bacchus is buried. 
the last person in the crypt of the Croft family, whom she served for decades. Turn off the recording and walk along Walnut Street to the old burying ground. Enter the cemetery. You should now be at our final stop, stop number eight, the old burying ground. The unmarked tomb of Susanna Bacchus is near the monument to John Pierce, the minister who intervened to enforce First Parish's whites-only pew policy. Pierce School is named in his memory. The minister's daughter described being amused looking up and seeing Susanna alone in the segregated balcony. Was Susanna up there those two Sundays when the white people down below were in such rebellion because a black child was sitting among them? Was Susanna alone? That was often the case. What was she feeling as she took it all in? Did she see the minister's daughter staring up at her? Did she wonder why the Crofts didn't take a stand invite her into their, and invite her into their pew? She was welcome to their grave, but not to their pew. Susanna Bacchus lived until 1863, when she was thought to be about 84. She spent most of her life serving two Brookline households. Susanna's parents were Bacchus, a kidnapped blacksmith from West Africa, and a Native American woman named Molly Hill. Through Susanna's mother, we believe she is descended from Monacoasan and is the only indigenous person buried in this cemetery. It's not easy to find where Susanna is buried. Given our selective memory, that seems fitting. Thanks for helping us remember her. For Jody and I, there's an unmistakable dissonance in this place, one that has only increased since we began developing the footprint story. A dissonance between memory cherished and memory suppressed. Monaquassen has become much more important to this story than either of us anticipated. We know so little about him. We know that he lost his wife and child in the 1646 epidemic. We know nothing about his parents or subsequent family until Isaac Monaquassen, probably a grandchild. What we know of Isaac, we know from, Brook, from Natick land records from the 1700s. The land in Natick was sold by a later generation, the children of Patience Croissant Hill. One of those children, we believe, was Molly Hill, the poor native woman and mother of Susanna Bacchus. Patience, her husband and children, are found in first parish records of the 1700s and 1800s. What else do we know of Monacoasan himself? Such were his English and Algonquin language skills and his relationship with the missionary Eliot, he may have been involved in creating the famed Algonquin language Bible, though that is not verified. He likely learned some of his English alongside Caleb, the Aquina Wampanoag remembered in the historical novel Caleb's Crossing. You could say Monaquassin was among the first native people to live on a reservation and attend a residential school. His honesty in describing his struggle was powerful. He once confessed that the embrace of Christianity wasn't so much about God or Jesus, but was motivated by his love of the land and fear of losing it. This did not go over well with Eliot. We don't know where or when Monacoasin died, 
Perhaps he lived to experience the horrors of King Philip's war and the horrific internment on Deer Island. Perhaps a disease killed him, as it did a wife and a child in the 1640s. He's there whenever the phrase, I'm a landowner, catches in my throat. Thanks for helping us remember him. We are in the process of connecting with members of the Massachusetts tribe on whose land we live and worship and on whose land we walk on to create this tour. Our closing words are from the Massachusetts tribe website. Quote, the Massachusetts tribe are the descendants of the original people that the English invaders first encountered in what is now the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. We, against all odds, have survived as the descendants of the first people of Massachusetts. We continue to survive as Massachusetts people because we have retained the oral tradition of storytelling just as our ancestors did. This tradition passes on the Massachusetts view of how our world works, our relationship with all of nature and why things are the way they are. There are ways of perceiving and doing things in our community that trace back thousands of years. There are medicine ways thousands of years old that we still practice today. We honor our ancestors for keeping the traditions they were able to keep for their foresight, for the gifts they left us, and for their continued guidance, end quote. And one last thing we'd like to leave you with. Native Americans in this Commonwealth have suffered decades of discrimination, disrespect, erasure of their history and worse. And today, a group of indigenous people and their allies, including the North American Indian Center of Boston and the United American Indians of New England, have created a political organization to fight for indigenous rights. Today, the 2023-2024 Indigenous Legislative Agenda includes five priorities. Remove racist mascots, honor Indigenous Peoples Day instead of Columbus Day, celebrate and teach Native American cultures and history, protect Native American heritage, and lastly, support the education and futures of Native youth. We encourage you to urge your state legislators to co-sponsor these five important bills. Thank you for joining us on this Footprints Tour. A list of our sources is available by contacting me, Jody Leader, at jody.leader at comcast.net. J-O-D-Y dot leader, like follow the leader at comcast.net. Thank you. <laughs>